Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. As we had an introduction last week, spent a little time between the Old Testament and the New. And our goal tonight is to get through chapters um, 2, 3, and 4. And what I want to emphasize as we finish the Old Testament is how many times we're going to hear the reoccurring phrase, uh, this was written so that it might be fulfilled. And we can't get very far into the New Testament without all these references to the Old. And so again, it's a complete book. And as we look at um, uh, these chapters tonight, it is packed with prophecy, one after another. Let's see, in chapter 2, I'm counting one, two, three. Looks like four prophecies that we're just going to find here. Each of them is a Bible study within themselves. But let's just look at verses 1 through 6 as we deal with uh, the visit of the wise men. Um, Everybody always presumed there's three. I don't think there was three. I believe there was a lot more. And um, this... Also, when you see um, a manger scene, you, sometimes you see the wise men there with their gifts. Um, when the wise men show up, they don't go to a manger, they go to a home. So they're still in Bethlehem, but it is some period of time after the um, angels would appear to the shepherds. So with that much of a background, we read in verse 1, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, And in days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem. Uh, We'll get into their title. They're referred to as the Magi. They would have been Persian. And we'll talk a little bit about them as we get through the first six verses. And they asked the question um, to Herod, where is he who is born king of the Jews? Now, this this would have gotten Herod's attention right away because he was put in place by the Romans. Um, uh, Herod was not Jewish. He was an Edomite, maybe an Ammonite. I, I get the two confused. He was one or the other. He was to be feared. And um, when this is put before him, the disciples, I mean the uh, wise men say, for we have seen his star, in the east, and we have come to worship him. And when Herod heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Now let this sink in. Not only was Herod troubled, but if we guys, if we have three guys coming into town on a camel, they have an audience with the king, we, we're not going to have the whole city of Jerusalem also troubled. What we have here is something quite, quite a bit larger. We have an entourage. And with this entourage, it's gotten everybody's attention. And um, all of the city is enamored of what is going on with these these men of royalty uh, coming to Jerusalem. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. He didn't know. Um, But here is where we begin to understand about Bible prophecy. He knew that he had men around him who would have known as it pertained to the birth of the Messiah. And so he said to them, 
as he gathered the scribes and the priests of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born, and they come up with an answer. And um, so they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judah, for thus it is written. Now please get used to this phrase. You can't read the New Testament, especially the Gospels, without this reoccurring phrase. This happened because this was written. And he refers to Micah chapter 5. But you, Bethlehem of the land of Judah, are you not least among the rulers of Judah? For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. They understood this as a messianic um, um, prophecy. And today, uh, one of the things that you're probably used to doing And one of the ways that you get to know your Bible better, where books are in the Bible, how fast can you find a book, do you know where the book is? And so what I'm going to do with some of these, and I'm doing it on purpose, is to purposely make you turn to that book, because maybe some of you are new in the Lord. And um, I might say, let's open to the book of Hezekiah. And you could be looking for the book of Hezekiah, and you could be looking for months and months and months and months, because there is no book of Hezekiah in the Old Testament. But if you ask the average person, um, you know, would you turn to the book of Hezekiah? You just just watch them. They'll they'll be looking for a long, long time for the book of Hezekiah. But there is a book of uh, Micah, and I'm going to have you turn to that for the very purpose of just finding out where it is. It's towards the end of the Old Testament. Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, is where it was foretold. The wise men show up. They have a question. Where's the one who's going to be king of the Jews? Well, that insulted Herod, and... um, They gave them this answer. Here it is, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, Euphrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth has been from old and from everlasting. That part isn't quoted. But here we have um, a reference to um, his part of the Godhead, having no beginning, Um, and his uh, eternal Godhead going on into eternity, the everlasting, the ever-living God. That's all right. Let's go back to Matthew. So Herod, as he thinks these things through, when Herod secretly called the wise men, he had a one-on-one with them, determined for them what time the star appeared. So they they talked about um, this star, When did they see it? When did it appear? And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. He knows from the get-go this is a setup. He wants to know where he is. He has no intention of setting him up. If it's one thing that's known about Herod, he was extremely paranoid. He built um, Masada. He built Herodian. These were unbelievable feats of um, engineering genius, especially Masada. But Herodian is between Bethlehem and Jerusalem. They have, in the last 10, 
15 years, maybe not even that long. No, shorter than that, five or six years. They have just discovered this man's tomb on Herodian. I've been on Herodian one time. Uh, he had his own swimming pool down there. It was very luxurious. But this were, was his not only escape places, but his retreat places that he would go to. Um, he killed many, especially family members, or anyone that he considered to be a threat to him. And this child born in Bethlehem is definitely a threat to him. So he's not has no intention of worshiping him. But in verse 9, when they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east, which went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. Uh, when you look for something for a long, long time and you finally find it again, it's like the woman who lost the ten coins. When she found the one, she was happy because she'd been looking for a long time. And all of a sudden, they follow the star. A lot of theories, a lot of conjecture. Is it alignment of planets? Was it an angel? Was it something that God, of his divine providence, just took this light to the star and used it for this one time, for this one moment? And the answer is, I don't know. <laughs> I've, I've heard all the theories. I've seen all the, the star alignments that claim that, that this is it. The problem is it stops. So one thing about the, the, uh, the cycle of the stars is, is just that. Our, our system is constantly moving. And to have one stop is a miracle. Now Joshua prayed that the sun would stop in the Old Testament. Do you realize the ramifications for making the sun stand still for a whole day? What has to happen in the cosmos for that event? And then arises the question, is there anything too big for God to do? And of course not. How did he do it? Well, I don't know. My Bible says his ways are past finding out. So when it comes to something like this, I don't have a problem with it. All I know is it was a star. And um, all I know here is that it appeared that the wise men were extremely excited about it. And... Um, it landed and stopped over Bethlehem. And when they, and this is important that you check out verse 11, when they had come into the house, they didn't go into a manger. Uh, Jesus has been moved with Mary and Joseph out of the manger into a home. When they came to Bethlehem, there was no room in the house. They had to go into the manger. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child, doesn't say baby. Herod's going to have children killed that are two years old and younger. So the duration of time is not given to us, but he's still uh, a baby. With Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And when they opened their treasures, they presented him to him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Let me just say that this is a large contingent and they're probably uh, the Magi. Let's just talk a little bit about the Magi and where they come from. They come from the east, which would have been in the realm of uh, Persia. And they evidently had some knowledge of the, uh, the star system. 
And one particular star that would appear, a star will rise out of Jacob, we're told in the Old Testament. And that could be a reference to what we have here. All we know is that they had some sort of information that was given to them divinely by either the Lord himself, but here is uh, my two cents worth on this. If they came from Persia, they would have came from the descendants of the Magi. And when Daniel was in Babylon and he interpreted the dream for Nebuchadnezzar, he put him second in charge. But not without giving a little dig to the astrologers and soothsayers and the people who are in the cultic part of the Babylonian worship. Uh, he said, uh, you know, the stream that you had, couldn't these guys figure it out for you? And we got, couldn't they do it? And then he made the point of saying, look, I'm nobody special, but there is a God in heaven. And uh, he knows how to interpret dreams. And when he went and had his prayer meeting with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the Lord revealed to Daniel the meaning of the dream. He explained it to him in great detail. And then he said, the dream is certain and the interpretation is sure. He became prime minister of Babylon. But after the Babylonian captivity, we had the Medo-Persian captivity. And when you're reading through Daniel, you'll read in the first year of Darius or in the third year of Darius. He now maintains um, um, a high-ranking prime minister type authority in two of the world reigning powers that ever existed. Babylon, Medo-Persian. And um, the Persians would have gone on. Daniel had a name, and this is where we're going to be talking about on a little bit more in depth about um, the reality of the spiritual realm. Daniel actually had a title called Rab, that's R-A-B-Mag, which meant Chief of the Magi. With his position, with his authority, and with his gifts, these men that um, uh, were put to shame by Daniel evidently became students of Daniel, and the top guy on the top would have been Daniel himself. His title, Rab Magi, and that is Chief of the Magi. I believe these guys were students of Daniel. And they were waiting a long time for the prophecy to be fulfilled, just like when we read in Daniel chapter 9, Gabriel gives the very day that Jesus is going to be worshipped. Now Palm Sunday is just a couple um, uh, couple Sundays away. And we'll be talking about the very day that Jesus was revealed. Who revealed it? God gave it to Daniel. To the day. So evidently, he gave to these magi something, a time frame to look for, for a sign. So I see these guys knowing that this is the generation we're supposed to be watching. And there's a lot of side Bible studies here that we, as we are told, um, you know, as it was in the days of Noah. So it's going to be when I come again. And it talks about what our culture is going to be like and our society is supposed to be like. And are supposed to keep us up on our tippy toes and um, have an attitude of expectancy and um, an attitude of watching. 
And that's what these guys did. I believe their whole life they gave to this moment. And all of a sudden, that which Daniel told them about this star that's going to rise and to to follow it, and it'll lead you to the one who is going to be a king. But I think he explained to them more than that. The gifts that they bring to them, we come to the conclusion that there's three kings because there's gold, frankincense, and myrrh. It doesn't say there were three kings. It says there were wise men that came. And I don't think three guys are going to upset the whole city of Jerusalem. And so they come, and they present these gifts. They worship uh, Jesus as the king of the Jews. And they opened their treasures, and they gave to him gold. And that's symbolic, because that's what you would give a king. So he's king of the Jews. But then they also give to him frankincense, and I believe this is by design. This is what a priest would do in the altar as he would put incense on the altar of incense, which represents the prayers of the saints. In the book of Hebrews, it talks about why Jesus is a superior high priest than the Levitical priesthood, like Aaron, and why um, he made sacrifice, but only one sacrifice, where if you were a high priest, you were offering uh, sacrifices all the time. And so that's what Hebrews is about. This would have spoke of him being a mediator, a priest. And that's what the high priest was. He was the mediator between God and man. But now we read there's only one mediator between God and man, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. So the idea of, of frankincense would have represented his priestly role And then myrrh is what the woman brought, the spices, when they embalmed him. And so the myrrh would speak of his death. And um, But I want to point something out here. Let's do a little sidetrack. Let's go to uh, Isaiah chapter 60. This will be during the millennial reign. Isaiah chapter 60, um, looking at verse 6. Isaiah 60 is about... The kingdom age, it says in verse 3, the Gentiles shall come to your light, and the king, kings of to the brightness of your rising. And then it says in verse uh, 6 that the Gentiles will bring their wealth, the multitude of camels shall cover your land, the dromedaries of Midian and Ephah and from Sheba shall come. And notice what they bring. They will bring gold and they will bring incense uh, during to the Lord during the kingdom age. What's missing? Well, what's missing by design is the myrrh, because Jesus dying once never needs to. uh, uh, He has risen. He is alive forevermore, and so he's still a king, king of king and lord of lords. He's still the priest that intercedes between God and man. So they bring him gold and incense, but the myrrh is left out, and that is by design. You you don't find that. All right, let's go back to Matthew. After this in verse 12, then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed from their own country another way. So we have... uh, um, 
a prophecy being fulfilled. Um, Hebrews 1 says God in times past spoke in various ways through the prophets. Various ways means he also spoke through visions, and in this case, dreams. They had a dream that says, don't go back to Herod. Go back another way, and so they did. Now in 13 through 15, we have the third prophecy. When they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and stay there till I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. Run. And uh, there's nothing that Herod is going to to stop him from trying to kill um, the child. So when he arose, he took the young child and the mother by night and departed for Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it, and here we go again, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken uh, through the prophet, saying, out of Egypt I called my son. And that's from uh, Hosea uh, chapter 11, verse 1. Now, we find um, this, this prophecy of literally happening where they flee, and this would be the third one. The fourth prophecy we're going to look at a little bit more carefully because now Herod is ticked off. He realized that the wise men blew him off. And they took off and went back another way. And when Herod, verse 16, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, emphasis on exceedingly. He didn't want to get this guy ticked, and he is. And he sent forth, and he put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts. Sometimes we miss that. We think just Bethlehem. No, the surrounding area. From two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. So... Evidently, this we're looking possibly at a couple of years here. And then it says again, then was fulfilled, which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet. Now we have another prophecy being fulfilled that says, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they were no more. Okay, moms. Let's make it real. Put, put yourself in that position. Every, every mother here has had a two-year-old. And, um, and to have uh, it done in such a brutal way, um, you know, it's all, all too common because that's what I watched before I came to the Bible study tonight. You know, the hearing of this guy uh, in Florida and, uh, and the insanity of it all, and the heart grief. I mean, it's across the nation. It's affected the entire country where kids from high school are coming out. And, um, you know, they showed the courthouse scene of the parents having a look at this, this guy that took the lives of these 17 kids. Well, that's just 17. We're talking about the whole area, and these are two years old and younger and male. Now, 
I'm going to get, ask you to turn to the book of Revelation chapter 12 at this point. And when, I, when we study Revelation, there is parts of it that are symbolic. Usually it's interpreted, if it is symbolic in the same chapter, sometimes it's not. If I were to give you one chapter to try to explain the entire Bible and God's plan, I'd probably point you to Revelation chapter 12. And I'll read the first six verses here, where it says, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, and the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Uh, This is the dream that Joseph had. Um, The Catholic Church will argue that it's Mary. If it's Mary... Um, the church, if the church, if it's a reference to the church, we're in trouble because it's pregnant. And she, being with child, cried out in labor and pain to give birth. As we studied uh, on Sunday, that Jesus and his genealogy is of the son and the lineage of David. And you trace it all the way back through to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob is the one, remember, and Joseph is the one who had the dream. And this was the dream that he saw. Um, And these uh, stars bowing down to him and the sun and the moon. So what is the woman? The woman is Israel. That's going to bring forth the Messiah. And then verse 3, another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon in heaven, seven heads and ten horns, and seven diadems on his head, He drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. Now this brings a whole new perspective into what we just read in Matthew. First of all, who is the fiery red dragon? Go down to verse 9. In verse 3, it's symbolic, but... The interpretation is in verse 9. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world and was cast to the earth and his angels with him. When we get to chapter 4, we're going to see the temptation of Christ. He's going to be tempted in the wilderness. The first temptation of a human being was Eve, and she was tempted in a garden. She succumbed. And whether or not the Lord will show us someday how this all unfolded at some point in eternity in God's perfect holy universe where all the angels were in subjection and worshipped him, somehow Lucifer persuaded one-third of all the angelic realm to leave and give their loyalty to Lucifer instead of to the Father. Well, Dwight, how do you know it was a third? Well, because of verse 4 of chapter 12, he drew a third of the stars. The stars are a reference to the angelic realm. Of the hundreds of millions of angels, we have one-third of them now revolting. Well, I'd like to know how he pulled that off. That had to be some sort of uh, temptation, uh, the power of persuasion that we really underestimate um, his cunning and his wit. 
And here, we're told that when he was, when he came to the earth, that he's waiting to devour the child as soon as the child is born. This is a reference to Herod. As soon as the child is born, what's the first thing that comes into Herod's head? I'm going to kill him. And uh, that is exactly what this is referring to here. And um, yet, uh, it says she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. The child is obviously Jesus. And her child was caught up to God in his throne. All right, between verses 4 and 5, and in the middle of 4, where the child was born, who's going to rule all nations, we have a 33-year period of time. Jesus was 33 years old. He had a ministry for three years, and he was taken bodily, caught up into heaven. We're talking Acts chapter 1, where he took the disciples to the Mount of the Olivet, and there they watched him ascend into heaven. A couple angels show up. Hey, you men of Galilee, what are you doing? And watching Jesus of Nazareth being ascending into heaven. They said, this same Jesus that you see being taken up to you now, he's going to return to the very same spot at Zechariah, where it talks in chapter 14, I think, where it says his feet will once again light on the Mount of Olives, the very same place that he left from. So we have, in the first five verses here, a picture of the nation of Israel, and we have the war in heaven, where he's, the devil is, is, is cast to the earth with the purpose of destroying the Messiah when he comes. And then the woman fled into the wilderness, where a place was prepared by God that she should be fed there 1,260 days. Now, between verse 5 and 6, we have a gap from the time that Jesus went to heaven And we have the last three and a half years of the tribulation period, which is still future. What are you saying, Dwight? Verses 1 through 5 has been fulfilled. Verse 6 is yet future. And uh, if you pick it up, um, without going through all of chapter 12, we read in 13, when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. So the persecution will be against Israel, and he will seek to destroy Israel. But the woman, Israel, was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly to her place where she is nourished for a time and time and half a times. Time, singular, is one year, plural, two years, two plus one is three, then half a year, three and a half years. Another way of saying 1,260 days. And so we're connecting verse 6 with verse 13 where God has prepared a place for the remnant, which is Petra. And if you're taking notes, I'm talking about Isaiah chapter 16, verses 1 through 6. And you can look that up later. But anyway, they will be the ones who call on the Lord for his return. All right? Can't get too sidetracked. Let's go back to Matthew. So what we have in verses 16, 17, and 18, we have the human side where Herod said, kill him. 
But what's going on behind the scenes? Who's motivating Herod? Well, Revelation chapter 12 tells us that it's a fiery red dragon who's waiting. And so we're, we're, we're talking human instruments that are motivated by demonic powers. And um, I believe that uh, the Bible teaches that Satan is the god of this world. He has um, um, his prominence in certain places. There's always a battle going on. Everybody, we toss the phrase around lightly, spiritual warfare. I don't think we have any idea what we're talking about. I think we'd be totally freaked out if we saw some of this stuff that goes on behind the scenes. If we see the human element, but if we could see what the enemy is doing supernaturally, um, you know, we're talking Daniel chapter 10. And then the spiritual warfare for one prayer, getting through. And that, uh, that went on for three weeks. Spiritual warfare for three weeks over one prayer. So let's go to the last couple parts. Verse 19, we'll finish up the chapter here. But these verses directly tie into um, the book of Revelation chapter 12. Verse 19 through 22. Now Herod dies. When Herod was dead, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the young child's life are dead. And then he arose and took the young child and his mother, came to the land of Israel. And when he heard that Achilles was raiding over Judah instead of his father Herod. He was afraid to go there. Evidently, um, sons know better than father. And being warned again by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of the Galilee, and he came and dwelt in a city which is Nazareth. What does it say again? That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. This this verse right here, um, let's just go back and talk about a Nazarene for a second. First of all, it had a bad reputation. <laughs> Evidently, uh, when they found out Jesus was from Nazareth, uh, the, the comment was, well, can anything good uh, come out of Nazareth? <laughs> Sometimes my head says, don't go there, and then I, and then I say something like that, and you're all curious why you want my head not to go there. Well, okay, so that's the reputation of the city that I came out of. I came out of Oshkosh, Wisconsin, and it had a reputation. When Johnny Carson was doing The Tonight Show and this Saturday is St. Patrick's Day, two places to be in the world, Dublin, Ireland, and Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Well, in my high school days, you know, in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, um, we started at 10 o'clock in the morning drinking green beer. And we would drink green beer until we couldn't drink any more beer. That usually lasted until 4 or 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And, um, you know, we got Johnny Carson giving us the, the, the place to be where the action is at, and that was the reputation. It was a party town. I mean, I had, I had good friends that went to college that never went to class. <laughs> and because they were, they were partying all night long, and that was sort of the reputation of uh, Oshkosh. 
Maybe it has some good points. I don't know. My dad was a barber there for many years, and so we'll give it that. But, uh, no, I have a, actually a special place in my heart for Oshkosh. Pray for the guys down there with the Calvary Chapel that they're working in my hometown. So anybody watching from Oshkosh? I love Oshkosh, okay? <laughs> but Nazareth had the same sort of reputation. They were hooligans. They had uh, uh, sort of this character about them that gave them that notoriety. Turn with me to the book of Judges, chapter 13. Again, it'll help you. I'd like you to, to actually do this so you get real familiar with your Bible, where to go, how to get there. So in chapter 13, we're really talking about Samson. But what did we just read here? Um that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, and the cross-references is Judges 13, verse 5. Well, Judges 13 is about Samson. And um, the idea of Nazareth and the vow of a Nazarite are two different things. John the Baptist, I believe, had the vow of a Nazarite. One of the things you couldn't do as a Nazarite is cut your hair. But if you look at verse 5, and that's a cross-reference to this, I would not think this is a prophecy concerning Jesus. But this is what it points back to. This is that which is spoken. For behold, uh, verse 5, you shall conceive and bear a son. This is a reference to Samson. No razor shall come upon his head, for a child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hands of the Philistines. And this is a cross-reference that we read, if you go back now to um, Matthew, in your cross-reference here, he shall be called a Nazarene. And we find that, um, the cross-reference there, is pointing back to, to Jesus. All right, chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judah. God had not spoken through a prophet for 400 years. The last prophet to speak was Malachi. And all of a sudden, we have um, John, uh, very tip of the Dead Sea, a place called Barabara, close to Qumran. And the first word that we read about John is, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And for this is he who was spoken, again, notice, by the prophet, over and over again. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Well, not only does it apply from Isaiah, but um, let's, let's just look at two real quick. Let's go back to um, Malachi, which is easy to find because it's the last book in the Old Testament. Um, We're being repetitive here, but that's how we learn. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Malachi 3 is a reference to what we just read about John the Baptist. The last two verses of the Bible, we've been extremely repetitive on this, is a double prophecy. 
Part of it refers to Elijah. The other part of it refers to John the Baptist. Verse 5 of Malachi 4, Behold, I said to Elijah the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. That's still yet future. It's a reference to the tribulation. He's one of the two witnesses spoken about in Revelation 11. And he will turn the hearts of the father to the children, and the children of the hearts of the children to the father, lest I come to strike the earth with a curse. Let's go from here and um, go to Matthew um, chapter 11, picking it up in verse 7. Jesus is talking about John the Baptist. And in verse 7, he refers to them when they first came out to hear John. And as they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you guys go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's house. This reed shaken in the wind is sort of a reference to, this is a man who has some spine to his back. And he speaks with such an anointing and power that everybody is coming from everywhere to hear his words. And they're repenting. They're convicted. This could only be done by the Holy Spirit. The very act of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of sin. And whenever John preached, they were convicted of sin. Even the soldiers, they were convicted. Well, what should we do? We're soldiers of Rome. So don't take advantage of people. And uh, don't um, um, take any money from them. So people ask questions. Verse 9, but what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, and I say to you, more than a prophet. For this is he, what does it say? Of whom it was written. Behold, I said my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there is not risen one greater than John the Baptist. That's quite a statement. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Wow. See, John was an Old Testament prophet. He said, I'm just a friend of the bridegroom, but I'm not the bride. Um, The church is the bride. And anybody that is born again, when, you know, when, when when a bride marries her husband, they become one. So everything that belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ, now we inherit. We're the bride of Christ, but not the best man. And um, the best man is just a friend of the groom. He doesn't have the same place, position of prominence as the bride does. And then he goes on to explain the last two verses of Malachi about John the Baptist and Elijah. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violence take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. This verse tells us that John was the last of the Old Testament prophets. He faded into the sunset. The very last words that John the Baptist said is, 
he must increase and I must decrease. Those words were spoken by the greatest man who ever lived. Who must increase? Jesus. Who must increase? John. Who must increase? Jesus. Who must decrease? Go ahead, put your name in there. Dwight. <laughs> you put your name in there. And then he goes on and say, and if you're willing to receive it, now he's talking about John the Baptist, he is Elijah. And then when you think you understand that, he said, who is to come? No, Elijah already came. Remember, he was caught up in a whirlwind and so on and so forth? No, he puts it in a future tense. He's referring to the great tribulation period where he's one of the two witnesses. And then he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. I really don't believe, unless you're a born-again Christian, who, when it means ears to hear, it means things of the Spirit. Paul said, we talk wisdom among, among those who are wise. But when he says that, it's in the context of the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You can talk to people about the Lord, about spiritual things, but if they're not born again, guess what? They don't have a clue of what you're talking about. They have, they have no idea why you like the Bible. They have no idea why you'd waste your Wednesday night going down and reading the Bible for an hour. And yet we long for it. And um, we know, as we're going to read shortly, that we can't live without it. Man can't live by bread alone. And um, the only thing that really satisfies the soul, spiritually speaking, is what? What we're doing right now. And so we, we have this cross-reference. Let's go back to Matthew. And we ended up with um, verse 2. Let's pick it up, verse 3, 4. John himself with clothes with camel hair and a leather belt around his waist. And his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, all the region around the Jordan went out to meet him and where he baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were convicted by this man. And um, they, they knew that uh, their lives were sinful and they wanted to know what to do about it. Baptism simply means, um, you know, uh, repenting of, and it's an outward it's an outward sign of an inward action. I'm turning from that. And so we read in verse 7, the word finally gets around to the religious hierarchy in Jerusalem. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to be baptized, he said to them, you brood of vipers. I uh, never read Peel's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. He just never got around to it, I guess. You brood of vipers. Who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? How many messages from the pulpit do you hear in churches today about that one? Uh, let's have a message about the wrath that is to come. You're not going to hear it. Um, but the greatest man who ever lived, that's what he preached. Jesus' first words were repent. John the Baptist's first words were repent. Without conviction, there can be no conversion. Mm, that's a good place for it, Amen. Without conviction of your sin, there can be no conversion. You can't be saved unless you realize you're lost. 
And that can only come as a result of the Holy Spirit going, dart to the heart. That's what happened when Peter preached his first time. He got halfway through his message. And it says they were cut to the heart. And they said, what must we do to be saved? He said, repent. And then be baptized. What's John the Baptist's message? One of repentance and baptism. Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, well, we're sons of Abraham, where I grew up in America. I'm not a communist. I grew up in the church. I'm a Christian. Well, we're fruit inspectors, and if you are, then um, the things that you desire uh, will be the things that are not of this world. And this gets radical when John writes about it in First John. It says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For anybody that loves the things of this world, the love of the Father isn't in him. Boy, that's tough on Americans, that scripture. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children of Abraham from these stones. They were taking solace and comfort in their religious upbringing. And aren't people doing that today too? And even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And his winnowing fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly purge his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with an unquenchable fire. This is um, the parable of the tares. We'll be talking about it more on Sunday, where we find um, um, the separation. You know, the Lord, when the gospel's presented, there's no neutral ground. When you hear the gospel and it's understood and the Holy Spirit is bringing an understanding that you are understanding it, now you have to choose. And there is no neutral ground. This is um, what the Bible refers to as the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, is the only sin that I will never forgive, not in this world or in the world to come. I I won't forgive it. Well, what sin is that? What what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? I sure don't want to commit that one because it's never, ever going to be forgiven. Well, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is like Romans 1, that people can look outside, and, and Paul in writing Romans 1 says, they know that there's a God because of creation. They know it because of creation. But they suppress that knowledge in unrighteousness. If I... No, the truth that's in my heart, I know there's a creator. You know, DNA should have settled that issue. The beauty of the sunset, the marvel of the animal kingdom, um, the glory of creation. Man is without excuse. He says, you'll hold them accountable simply because of creation. Well, they never heard the gospel. Yeah, well, they got eyes and they've seen creation. And they know that there's a God. So what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Well, That's when you hear and understand that Jesus Christ came, died for your sins because you're a sinner, 
And you are convicted of that truth, and you know it to be true, but you suppress it. And you, do, you think to yourself, I understand this, but if I do that, that means I can't be boss anymore in my life. That means I can't do some of the things that I used to. You know what? Someday I might become a Christian. That's, that's what I, when sometimes when people get to that point, you know, someday I just might do what you're talking about. What guarantees do you have for tomorrow? We talked about it on Sunday with the guy with the bigger barn. His whole life he was prospering, prospering, prospering. Well, tear down my barns, build bigger ones. Things are going good. I got enough to kick back, eat, drink, and be merry. And the Lord said, you fool. You fool. You've done all this and you don't know that this is the last end of your life. And all this stuff that you've worked so hard for, you're not going to take it with you. You've thought about all the material things and you've taken no thought whatsoever for your soul. So what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? The only sin that can't be forgiven is that you understand the gospel, that either you're for me or against me, either you gather people into the kingdom by the way that you live and by how people observe you and and, uh, watch your conduct and style of life. Simple question. By the way you live, are you actually, you know you're being watched, right? So are you gathering people in by your lifestyle? Or are you saying, ah, life's a breeze, do what you want to, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die? Or the other extreme is John the Baptist. Who's fleet, who, who warned you about the wrath that's to come? Who warned you that there's going to be a judgment day and you're going to have to stand and give an account? So when you understand the gospel, and in your heart, you'll say, maybe someday? No, you just said no. And you've just committed the unforgivable sin. Because saying no to the Holy Spirit when you're under the Holy Spirit's conviction, and you reject that, and there's no other way under heaven whereby you must be saved, that's why it's the only sin that can't be forgiven. You just rejected the only way for sin to be forgiven and for you to go to heaven. And, um, well, maybe I'll change my mind when I die. Well, my Bible says once to die, and then the judgment. Dwight, you're getting sidetracked in the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that's because I realize there's no way I'm going to be able to finish chapter 4. So I'm, mil- I'm milking the last couple of verses of chapter 3. I'm not going to see the clock. My time's up. But what a great place to get sidetracked. Last uh Verses here, 13 through 17, Jesus' baptism. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. They were cousins, six months apart. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and you're coming to me. And Jesus said unto him, Permit it to be so, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all in righteousness. And then he allowed him. John didn't, have, didn't want nothing to do with baptizing the one that he knew was the Messiah, who was without sin. And when Je- then when Jesus had been baptized, came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. He saw the Spirit of God, descending like a dove, lighting upon him. 
And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Look out for the Jesus-only UPS, those who do not hold to the Trinity, who say the Trinity is not in the Bible. The Trinity is in Genesis 1-1, for Pete's sake. And we just concluded our Bible study tonight with Jesus being baptized, the Holy Spirit coming down like a dove, and the Father speaking from heaven. Hello? Can it get any more clear than that? And how and why they try to explain this away, you simply can't do it. So what we have here in these verses is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And um, immediately he's confronted with spiritual warfare as he goes in the wilderness now for the next 40 days and nights where he'll be tempted. And obviously we'll be picking that up next week. But this is what when, when I have the privilege and opportunity of praying with somebody to accept Jesus. I don't tell them that, oh, boy, God's got a wonderful plan for your life. He might. No, I tell them one of the first things is, well, the first thing that's going to happen now is the enemy's going to try to come and undo what you just did. And um, it can take on different forms in different fashions. You just made a decision to follow the Lord. You think the enemy's going to give up and try to undo that seed? That's what the parable of the sower is all about. As soon as they receive the, the word, then comes the devil and tries to take the word out of their heart, lest they would believe and what? And be saved. So we're saved by th- faith through grace. How do we get faith? Well, what we just did last hour. Took, out, took a couple chapters and um, allowed uh, the word of God to, f- to feed us and so that we can be a little bit more confident, a little bit more sure that God has his purposes and plans. And of all the times we quoted, this happened because it is written, I'll close by saying the ones that he mentioned that are still yet future, where Elijah is coming, you think there's anything in the universe that's going to stop that from happening? I don't think so. And so we know what's going to take place ahead of time. And I'm past my time. So let's stand and let's pray. Lord, as we um, get into Matthew, and um, Lord, help us go at your pace, and, and we give you permission to lead and guide it the way you want to. Help us be flexible as we make our way through this. Help us be aware of... Um, of your purpose in coming, and that is to um, just be led and follow you. So, Lord, as we go our way tonight, we, we pray for Sunday's message ahead of time as we take a more in-depth look of the, the spiritual warfare that took place in Bethlehem and in um, the Lord's early ministry. We thank you for your word tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.